Hello and welcome to another episode of Use of Force. This week we are discussing an incident where a young man named Taiwan Hill was killed by police in the Red Hook neighborhood of Brooklyn. I'm going to read the Use of Force report incident statement from the NYPD. On September 21st, 2012, at 22.03 hours in the 76th precinct, a sergeant working with a team conducting prostitution enforcement activities discharged his firearm at a subject who was armed with a firearm. The subject, who was one of four men in a vehicle who had propositioned a female officer posing as a prostitute, fled the vehicle after being stopped by members of the arrest team. Two officers and the sergeant pursued the subject on foot and eventually caught up with him. A violent struggle ensued as the subject attempted to resist arrest. The officers attempted to gain control of the subject by utilizing a baton and pepper spray, both without success. The subject then put his hand underneath his body, retrieved a 9mm pistol, and pointed it at the officers. The sergeant fired one round at the subject, striking him in the head and causing his demise. The subject had several arrests dating back to 2007. Okay, so we have several articles to pull from on this particular story spanning over the past eight years since the incident occurred. We'll start with the 2012 reporting. Uh, we have an article from DNA Info about the incident. And this article was strictly the reporting of it as far as the immediate events, which more or less mirror what the use of force report was that we just heard, that there was a operation set up to catch uh, people in the act of soliciting prostitutes. The act or the operation was called Operation Losing Proposition, which we'll get to in a minute as far as the name goes. But as described, uh, Taiwan Hill drew a semi-automatic handgun, according to the police, and pointed it at the officers after he fled the scene when an unmarked uh, car filled with police officers came to enact the sting after the young men in the car solicited the police officer for oral sex for the four of them. The officer that fired his gun, uh, Quigley, was an eight-year vet who had never previously fired his gun. And the uh, article described Taiwan Hill as having had prior arrests for robbery, assault, and narcotics, which we'll get to again in the, in the 2017 article that covers this. As far as the Operation Losing Proposition, uh, I think for me it's worthwhile to call it out just because it kind of demonstrates how this game mentality we have, like kind of the cops and robbers mm -hmm. situation with this, where like I wouldn't think that if they thought at all that this would result in a death and a lawsuit that anybody would name it you know, this kind of punny title. Right. But even, yeah, if, if they had really, if they knew the, 
extreme outcome that would come from this. I agree they probably wouldn't, but it's clear they obviously wanted to arrest people and they obviously wanted to catch people in the act of soliciting a prostitute. So there's already just a disregard for the lives of, you know, quote unquote criminals, people that want to engage in this type of activity, uh, losing proposition. It's, yeah, it's already just sort of so casual about putting someone in jail or, you know. Yeah, I don't know how much it has to do with the politics within the police, the idea of legitimizing activities, you know, if you can prove that you have a, a reason to work there, maybe you get funding or mm. things like that, you know, and it's like a shorthand way, oh, losing proposition, okay, proposition, prostitution, I get it, that's right. what you do, and it's like, this isn't a marketing firm, though. You know, right. It's, it's not a marketing firm. It's not SNL. It's like it doesn't need to appeal to regular people. It needs to just be there should just there should be some kind of shorthand, I would think. But it could be like uh, one like a string of numbers. It could be like, you yeah. know, case 125 yeah. or something. But it, yeah, it may need to appeal to somewhere, uh, you know, politicians or somebody for funding. And maybe that's why right. they name it something like this. No, you know, in any respect, there, there's just no reason to to do something like this, except for the fact that I think it's deeply embedded this cop, cops and robbers game yeah. that we have in our system. Yeah. So I have, yeah. this is just kind of an aside, but having lived over in that area from, I guess, 2008 till 2014 or 15, like this happened in 2012. And the whole time I lived over there, there was, there were a lot of prostitutes in that area. And so I'm sort of, I've certainly heard of prostitution stings before, but I don't know that I've ever been able to apply it to my own life. And I know there was really no, uh, from from what I could see, I mean, I think the maybe the issue with prostitution would be that the people prostituting themselves could be in danger. Right. That would be the thing I would see an issue with potentially. But having lived in that neighborhood and having, you know, walked by these people regularly, I never felt unsafe and I never really, it was just kind of part of the neighborhood. So it's kind of, there's something that feels off to me that I can't quite un explain about even knowing that there was a prostitution sting happening in that area. Right. Well, I think it's similar to how uh, drugs are used to keep people down and, uh, you know, create a system where certain people are entered into the system and then yeah. they can't get out of that. So, right. I, I mean, there is there's definitely a moral thing here that is difficult to remove from our society. And then it's, yeah, it's just a way to capture people who probably in the eyes of the law enforcement system will be likely to participate in other types of crimes. 
Yeah. Yeah, I guess, and I'll just say this and then we can move on, but I guess I, it makes me feel a little frustrated that there'd be this prostitution sting. And especially like you said, if there is this, you know, catchy name in order to get funding, which we're not sure if that's the case, but there certainly is some sort of money going into this. And I just think, why wouldn't they just use the money to find the people that are prostituting themselves and help them in a different way? You know, like, you know, that area is full of prostitutes. So you could spend an evening driving around and connecting with these people and then maybe finding some sort of alternate livelihood for them or or helping to find out why it is that they're doing this. Right. Well, this is an enforcement arm. It's not a yeah. rehabilitation or improvement arm. Right. But I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's just frustrating to me that the enforcement arm would be what would be funded. And I don't even know that there is a rehabilitation arm for something like this. Sure. So then we fast forward to the 2017 reporting, which was a Daily Beast article where the reporter went to the location under the BQE, which was our walk for this week, or the Gowanus Expressway to be more specific. When the reporter went to the location with the attorneys for Hill's, representing Hill and Hill's mother, uh, Philip Smallman and Michael Cullihan, and they walked through the event. And so they, as I said earlier, the police say the the young adults in the in the Mazda bargained with the hooker, Officer Carly Rivera, for forty dollars, ten dollars a piece for oral sex for all the four uh, guys. At that point, the police claim that uh, Rivera's arm was grabbed by one of the uh, people in the car. And the defense in the article claimed that there was surveillance footage saying otherwise. Mm. We didn't find anything in our current research that talked about whether or not that was debunked or not in the trial um, that ensued. We can get to that in a little bit. Um, but at that point, they are on tap for misdemeanors, which would be a max of 90 days in jail or a $500 fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't know that probably. Of course. But not. they are, that's what they're all on the hook for at that point. At that point, Taiwan Hill uh, runs away from the scene. The cops claimed at that point because he had a gun. Um, whether or not that's true or not, that's what their belief was. What their assumption of yes. why he ran. And then one of the officers begins to chase them on foot. Now, we mentioned earlier in the 2012 article that the, the story was capped off by saying Hill had charges for robbery, assault, and narcotics. So when you hear something like that, it's kind of like we had on the previous use of force when we talk about, you know, subject had prior arrests, subjects had narcotics in his system, things like that. Here's what robbery, assault, and narcotics meant as described by the 2017 article. Robbery was that he was arrested at age 19. He was 22 when he was killed. He was arrested at 19 
for stealing another kid's cell phone. Mm. And at that point, he was, you know, entered into the system. Mm -hmm. And he was involved in an alternative sentencing program. I'm not sure what, but I, the way that it's phrased presumes to me that it, it's something that, you know, is maybe more rehabilitative. Okay. Un un unclear. But he was, while in this alternative sentencing program, he was caught in violation of testing positive for marijuana. Okay. Now, marijuana legally is narcotics. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So people, you know, when I hear narcotics, I think like kind of pres or... prescription pills yeah. or, or any, anything that's like a more serious thing. Yeah. But as far, yeah, as far legally, uh, that's, they can say that and wow. claim that that's, um, you know. Or at least they could at the time. Can they still? Because now it's decriminalized. I believe it, I believe it's still, it's like it's a legal classified a classification. Okay. Yeah. That, at least that was what I found research was. Okay. But it's, it's all about framing of yeah. what this person is, you know, public perception and, yeah. and making people just kind of not give a second glance to what's going on. Right. And then as far as assault, it's part three of this story, he was put in an upstate drug program mm -hmm. and he smoked marijuana again, went to jail for that for one day. And when he got back to the program, there was another client in the drug program that was wearing his clothes and sneakers. Okay. And he got into a fistfight with him. And for that, he was sent to prison for 18 months. Wow. So. Yeah. All of these decisions, not good ones on his part, but not things that should set you up to be ruined for life. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really, uh, that sounds to me like the way that it's framed, like you said, robbery, narcotics, and assault, that makes it sound so much stronger and more intense and like these huge events. Whereas I could also imagine someone explaining, oh yeah, my teenage son stole a phone and smoked some pot and got into a fistfight and we're, we're dealing with him. Got into a fistfight while and in that, rehab. Yeah, and it's like, this is, this is a young, this is like a very young teenage boy. And depending on your framing and your environment and who it is that is telling the story and who's, you know, whose son it is and who's, who that person is that's sharing it, I feel like it's just, yeah, we're seeing that it's so easy to twist that into sounding like it's so much worse than it actually is. Yeah. And so the article goes on to continue to describe the situation. We're talking about the perception of how robbery, narcotics, and assault as words can frame the argument. This is more of a picture painting exercise by the article, but you know, it describes the area under the BQE as a grim, shadowy side street of gated garages and auto supply shops and the cavernous meridian beneath the loud, rumbling Gowanus Expressway. I mean, it's filling color for it, but it also goes to our lived experience of walking these mm -hmm. roads and, and what it means to, you know, 
to be in that space. I mean, you live there for a number of years. Mm -hmm. We're walking there this week. And there, it's also playing out in these, the both Taiwan Hill's head and these police officers' heads as this is happening, the idea that this is a neighborhood where like this type of thing happens, right. you know? Well, it is, yeah. And I think we've, we spoke about this a bit on the podcast this week, but it is this overpass that doesn't really have anything going on underneath it. It has many lanes of traffic on either side. And then it also has uh, New York City housing on either side of the expressway. And so, yeah, it's kind of just this underserved and sort of like let, let, uh, let to be nothing. Yeah. It is a it it is not a considered area. Right. Like there wasn't a lot of planning as far as humans habitating there. Mm -hmm. And then it gets a reputation for being a place that you don't want to be. Right. And then it manifests in events like these. Yeah. So then we get to the struggle involving the weapon. So Taiwan Hill is five foot nine and 140 pounds. Okay. He didn't have any drugs or alcohol in his system. It takes five cops to restrain him. Mm. And he was sprayed with pepper spray. Mm -hmm. And I'll, re I'll just read a quote from the article. Then as Hill lay prone, blinded, face down in the gutter with five cops on top of him, two of whom would later admit in depositions could bench press more than 300 pounds, Police say they could only get a handcuff on one wrist. And then the one of the defense attorneys or prosecuting attorneys says, and we are supposed to believe, and the city thinks a jury will believe, that somehow this 140-pound guy raises 1,200 pounds of policemen with a dozen trained hands trying to cuff him and manages to raise himself up to his knees, reach into his waistband, pull out a 9-millimeter pistol, and somehow pointed over his left shoulder at Sergeant Quigley. And so they, the attorneys are a bit hesitant to claim that there was evidence planting, as it right. is a very difficult claim to substantiate. Mm -hmm. But they were saying, and at least in the article, that they felt it was a greater than 50% chance that that was the case of what happened. Wow. Now. Yeah, I mean, even if it wasn't, I think, I think even if it wasn't evidence planting and even if Taiwan Hill did have that pistol, I would agree with that. I mean, the only reason I would think that they weren't able to cuff him was maybe because they were getting in the way themselves. Like, it just seems like another instance of bad, untrained police. Like, it's not, like they're they're fumbling, they're all trying to get the bar of soap or something on the ground and they're fumbling over each other is what it sounds like. And they don't have like a system for this person handles the suspect's arms and this person handles their upper half torso or, you know, like I don't know how it should work, but it just seems like they, they don't know how it should work either. Yeah. Well, Hill's mother in the 2017 article suggested that she believed that it was an accident and she would feel better about it if they would just come out and say it was an accident. Mm. But that's not what 
happened. Right. As you know, as far as them admitting it was an accident. And so that was 2017 and it went to trial and it's, it's, there were several years at which it played out. Yeah. And I know you have more information on that. Yeah. So it actually seems like it's still pending. Um, the way that from doing this research since June, the way that I've, or we've learned that these things typically work is that, uh, the family will, uh, make a lawsuit against the officers, the, that lawsuit often doesn't go to trial because of all sorts of laws that protect NYPD. What typically does go to trial is then a second lawsuit against the city of New York. And typically this, the lawsuit against the city of New York will end in some kind of monetary distribution and the lawsuit against the officers, like I said, usually doesn't even go to trial because of all these protections. But when it does go to trial, the, the plaintiff is looking for some kind of prosecution against the actual officers themselves as far as, you know, jail time or some kind of demotion or loss of job or something like that. Mm -hmm. So in this case, there are two lawsuits. There's the lawsuit against the city of New York, which is still ongoing and still pending, mm -hmm. as far as I can tell. Then there's also the lawsuit against the officers. And so those are officers, or actually um, Sergeant Quigley, Lieutenant Casella, Officer Gonzalez, Officer Oliver, Officer Ook, Officer and Officer Tyrol. And that went to court in September of 2016. And the jury couldn't, uh, couldn't come up with any decision. So they had a lengthy deliberation and they couldn't agree. So it was considered a mistrial and it went back to court in March of 2018. And in both of these cases, the plaintiff brought two claims. One was against Sergeant Quigley, which was the officer that actually fired the weapon that killed Taiwan Hill. And that, that claim was a claim of excessive force against Sergeant Quigley. And then the second claim was, fail, was failure to intervene, and that was filed against the other officers. And in March of 2018, the jury made a verdict in favor of the defendants. So meaning that they found all of the officers not guilty. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think we've talked about this before. It's very complicated. There, I think in general, there's sort of the guilty versus not guilty, it's, it's more complicated the way that the laws actually work than just, you know, do you think that this person did something wrong? There's often a lot of other things that have to be considered. And when you're dealing with police officers in particular, there's all these protections. So it seems like that's part of why the jury was not able to decide in the first trial and then uh, made the verdict in favor of the defendant in the second. I think because 
there's all these additional protections that they have to consider. Mm -hmm. So I also just looked into uh, generally what these officers have been involved in as far as complaints and lawsuits. So there's two websites that list these things, ProPublica lists complaints and CAPSAT lists lawsuits. And I found Sergeant Quigley showed up on both websites. He has um, seven complaints filed against him since 2007, three of which were substantiated. And those three that were substantiated were, um, I'll start from the one that was first, which was in January of 2012, um, he was charged with stop and frisk, or it was a, yeah, it was a substantiated complaint um, against a 48-year-old Hispanic male. Mm -hmm. And then in June of 2018, he was charged with abuse of authority, refusal to obtain medical treatment for a 38-year-old black man, and that was substantiated, and he was disciplined for that. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I said three, the stop and frisk, those are two separate claims. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so he does have a history of complaints and then he also had four lawsuits since 2008 filed against him one of which of course was the Taiwan Hill lawsuit mm -hmm. and all of the other officers of course were also involved in the Hill lawsuit only Ook and Tyrol had that as their only lawsuit um, Lieutenant Casella had eight lawsuits against him Gonzalez had um, three lawsuits against him. Oliver had four lawsuits against him. So I don't know. I just, I find this interesting because it seems like the these officers are able to just sort of rack this stuff up. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that we have this information now to look at. But there's another thing that I found while I was looking this up that we've talked about in the past, but two... Two of the officers were honored in different ways since this event. Mm -hmm. um, Sergeant Quigley was given an Officer of the Month Award in 2014 for seizing two guns at the Gowanus houses. Mm -hmm. And Lieutenant Casella was also honored in 2014 for something that was I thought was very strange. It was a a bribery. He stopped a vehicle for a traffic infraction and saw a passenger stuffing marijuana into his waistband. That person also had $25,000 worth, worth of stolen gift cards on him. And the that passenger in the car uh, offered Casella and his colleagues a bribe from his brother. The cops went along with that offer and then when the the brother showed up they charged both men with bribery and yeah there's a quote the boss was happy casella said he said it showed great integrity so 
yeah, here's an uh, instance again where we've seen this before. It seems like there is something going on with the officers where these sort of major problematic events happen and shortly after and even while other lawsuits are ongoing they're honored and awarded and called heroes for something that or multiple other events that really don't seem worthy of honoring someone to me mm -hmm. yeah it's unclear how much that they were given these awards based on the events involving this case sometimes it seems like it's a one-to-one -one. this one it's not entirely clear but yeah. yes it is a it is a practice that we've identified in the past and here's another instance of it yeah yeah i, I of course yeah i don't know that it's specifically because of this event and i don't think there's any way we could know why they're making these decisions but i just thought it was worth calling out and making a note of since it's something that we've seen a number of times before so i think that's all we have for this particular incident mm -hmm. yeah and as always if anyone listening has more information about this incident or any other NYPD use of force incidents over the last decade. We would love to hear from you and find out uh, what you what you would like to share with us. And thanks for listening.